we are back with uh, season two of the Sakif and Steven show. I'm Sakif. I'm Steven. And um, yeah, we it's been a while. It's been over a month now that we posted the last episode, the final episode for season one. But we're back now. We we took some time to kind of figure out where we're gonna go next with this uh, with this whole podcasting thing. And uh, the goal still remains the same, where we want to find extraordinary people, people doing amazing things in life, uh, people we can be inspired by. And hopefully when you guys listen as well, you can uh, be inspired by the things that they do, uh, inspired by their passion for life, passion for uh, the things that they're doing, basically. So, yeah. Uh, Stephen, do you want to talk about, like, you know, instead of podcasting, that how we're also moving into visual storytelling and stuff? Yeah, so previously for season one, we were only doing podcasts, but... For this season, we're going to add in videos as well as photos after a mixture of the offerings we're going to get uh, just to add a kind of visual part on top of our audio storytelling. We'll be on YouTube as well as Instagram, so be sure to follow us and keep updated on our latest episodes. Yeah, uh, so first episode for this season we have someone who's been on the road for nearly three years now and uh, his journey started in British Columbia, Canada. Yep. And uh, yeah, like for the past few years, he's been traveling with no motorized transport. So no planes, no cars, no uh, no uh, motorized boats. Not even escalators. Not, not even escalators, elevators. So yeah, like I said, he started in Canada and then he's, you know, he sailed across the Pacific Ocean on yeah. a sailboat. He has been uh, cycling across China. He's, uh, and all this, you know, to raise awareness about sustainability mm-hmm. and to raise awareness about how uh, the resources that we have on Earth is finite and mm-hmm. we should not take things for granted. Yeah. And uh, we should be conscious about our uh, consumption decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's a, it's going to be a great episode. Like we, we obviously we're recording this after we've interviewed him. Um, hope you guys enjoy it. Like, Let's give it to Marcus. Marcus Pukonen from Roots of Change. This episode was recorded in East Coast Park. So please bear with us for the background noises as well as sounds. Enjoying the show. This is Akif. This is Steven. Join us as we seek the dreamers and doers. Discover the extraordinary. And share the inspiring stories of people who are pursuing their passions. And chasing their dreams. Welcome to the Sakif and Steven Show. Hi, I'm Marcus from Roots of Change. I'm circumnavigating the planet without ever using motorized transport. And I'm 1,055 days in from Toronto, Canada to Singapore. Instead of us introducing you, you can just start by telling us more about yourself and um, maybe your background, your younger days, and what kind of led you to where you are right now. Okay. Um, well, I I grew up in Toronto, okay. Canada, and um, I left the city after high school and I went out west to the Rocky Mountains to work at a little tea house and once I left the city and saw the mountains and saw and felt how healthy I could feel I knew I could never go back and live in a city I just felt so much better out in the wild and out in the woods and in the mountains and uh, 
After doing that for a summer, I went to school, uh, University of Victoria, out on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, I didn't really want to go to school at the time. I thought I was sort of, I didn't really know what I wanted to study, so it felt like a waste of time. I knew I wanted to travel. I knew I wanted to like learn more experientially, I guess, and like just experience the world and figure out stuff from my own. And so uh, after first year of university, I went traveling and I went down to South America for a year and a half. And, uh, I just fell in love with traveling. Uh, I really, really appreciated the ability to live in the present moment and to just sort of make decisions based on your instinct from day to day. Like I could wake up and decide, oh, I'm gonna go to Peru today, or no, I'm gonna go and climb a mountain instead or something, you know? And just having that sort of freedom to decide my path just felt, uh, it felt really great. And I, and I fell in love with traveling. So when I got back to Canada, I pretty much by that point had decided that I could never do the nine to five, two weeks a holiday a year type of thing I just I just knew it wasn't for me so I started working seasonally I did I worked at this tea house again for a couple summers which is you know it's like serving tea up on the side of a mountain it's a pretty amazing spot though like you could only get there by hiking okay. and uh, people would hike an hour up the mountain and we'd serve them tea and biscuits and cookies and then we'd live up there on the mountain on the side of this lake where you could dip your mug into the lake and drink the water straight out of the lake waterfall dropping down out of this big bowl and snow-capped peaks is ideal place and so I did that another couple summers traveled in the winters and then uh, and then I transitioned into planting trees for a couple years okay. uh, which is a pretty common sort of summer job for university students it's probably the hardest some of the hardest work on the planet um, it's sort of like an accepted form of slave labor in Canada okay. <laughs> uh, like it doesn't need to be hard if you don't want to make a lot of money, but if you want to make a lot of money, which most people do, you, you just back-breaking work. So I'd plant anywhere from two to 4,000 trees in a day. And you just you, you load up your bags full of like 100 trees on one side, 100 trees on the other, just little seedlings. And you basically bend over 200 times in an hour to, to make 20 bucks. So you do that 10 or 20 times in a day and you can make up to you know three to four hundred dollars a day on a good good day so i did that for a couple summers traveled again most of these travels were in central america or south america um, and then I, I discovered that there was uh firefighting forest firefighting okay. which was similar sort of industry in british columbia this was all in british columbia on the west coast and uh, I heard that their money was good and the job was just a lot more easy. It was a unionized job, you got breaks. You weren't always, you know, breaking your back to make a dollar. And so I got into that and it was great work too. So I fought forest fires, basically. I'd be, I was on our initial attack team where you like, if a, a storm rolls through, um, lightning strikes will happen. Like here in Singapore, it's, crazy with the lightning which is awesome I love this city for that but uh, in Canada because we have so many forests every time lightning strikes there's it's a good chance that there's going to be a fire and so 
about 50% of the fires that we fought were caused by lightning. The other 50 were human or industry. Um, but we would basically get called when there was a new start, and we'd fly around in a helicopter to the fire and find water and put water on it. It was really like simple work. Sometimes it involved cutting down trees that were on fire, which made it much more interesting. And all sorts of, it was beautiful though, you know, you're flying around some of the most beautiful scenery in, in Canada and British Columbia through the mountains and putting out fires. And so again, it was seasonal work, work in the summer, travel in the winter. And after doing this for, you know, I've been doing this seasonal work and traveling thing for a number of years. And uh, I saw, you know, I saw what was going on in the world, basically. Like, uh, I could see that there was, a lot of the my lifestyle in Canada and just the influences of the first world on the more developed world were pretty pretty like visible and and clear and uh, I felt sort of responsible in a way. I, I also felt um, coming from a very privileged place in Canada where I had the choice to do what I want and I felt like I wasn't really using that privilege as much as I could to to sort of help people, you know? Um, I was just basically living a great life. I work and travel, work and surf. And so after doing that a number of years, I started, I got inspired to be more involved um, in environmental activism, social justice stuff. Um, and I wanted to get into that, like, into that line of work. But I realized that most of those jobs are just desk jobs, you know, which I had no interest in doing. Like, I really loved being outdoor manual labor stuff. Um, that's what fed my soul, and that's what, like, I, I felt healthy doing. I just don't feel healthy sitting in front of a computer, you know? I don't think most people do, but they do it because that's what everybody does. But I knew I didn't want to do that, but I still wanted to be involved in environmental or social justice, and so I. I, uh, I basically thought how I could combine the two and, uh, and combine other passions in my life into one project. And uh, as I was trying to figure out this all out, um, a number of things happened in my personal life. One being uh, my sister became pregnant with my first niece. And so that got me thinking about her future and thinking about the world that she was inheriting from me and the world that, you know, the future that looked, the future that was she was, you know, going to be born into. And so um, that was part of my inspiration. And then also uh, my dad called me up and told me that he had two weeks to live. Um, he'd been diagnosed with like a rare form of leukemia. And uh, they said if he didn't take like crazy chemo right away, he was, uh, was going to be dead in two weeks. So. On my way home to see him, that's when I put everything together and uh, came up with Roots of Change, which is what I'm doing now, which combines my love of traveling, my love of uh, filmmaking, and like sort of that's my creative output through all this, photography and videography, um, learning about different cultures, languages, and connecting up with local nonprofit organizations as I go. So, so yeah. So what I'm doing now is roots of change, and it's basically I'm going around the whole planet uh, for maybe about 
five to seven years. I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to take me, but uh, the only so-called rule of the journey is that I never use a motor. So I never use motorized transport, I should say. What about electric motors? No electric motors, no, no motorized transport. So I will not use a motor to move myself. I've used a blender <laughs> and a washing machine. But I have not gotten on an elevator, or an escalator, a plane, train, car, motorbike, none of, none of that uh, since I started. And the goal is to go all the way around the planet, about 80,000 kilometers. And uh, the idea is to use that adventure, the craziness of that, because I can attract an audience and divert some of that attention towards uh, local nonprofit organizations that that I meet along the way, wherever I go, I'm always sort of seeking out, inspiring people who are doing really cool things, who, um, like many little local nonprofits, they struggle for funding. They spend a lot of time behind their desks just figuring out writing grants and trying to get funding just so that they can do their work. And I think that's just, it's, it's unfortunate that that's the case. You know, a lot of these organizations are doing work that the governments should be doing, but the governments do not do so they're filling holes basically so really these these organizations should be really well funded but they they just struggle to survive and so that's where i hope to come in as sort of like a free marketing tool in a way for them i can gain some media attention and direct my that attention towards them and hopefully raise some money for them as i do that so you raise this money and then it's it gets evenly distributed across the to, yeah, to the different and these ngos you meet them along the way like so you go to a country and just link up with them yeah, I mean, it's it's been harder than I expected to link up with different organizations. I mean, part of it in some countries is the language barrier, but more than anything, it's that these a lot of these organizations don't have the time for some random guy traveling around the world without a motor, and they don't necessarily see the value. And fair enough, at this point, I don't, I can't offer too much value because I'm really just doing it by myself with very little resources. So it's hard to get in touch with them. It's hard to like get their interest sometimes. But I mean, it's, it's worth. I mean, it is working. I am doing it. I'm surviving and I'm helping out. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's great. So you've been on the road now for 1,055 days. That's that's a crazy feat. Is that what it is? 1,055 days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. It's more than three years now. Does it, does it count today? No, it's not three years yet. Close to three years. Three. It'll be three years, July 13th. July 13th. Yeah. Almost there. Uh, yeah, what's it been like so far? Like, uh, What were some of your more memorable moments in these two years? What has it been like so far? That's a tough question. <laughs> it's been a lot. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, the second I started, like, I had a lot of stress before I started the trip, just making it happen. And I, and I made a decision to start it, whether I had sponsorship or funding to begin or not um, the idea was I went back to school eventually to study documentary filmmaking with this trip in mind thinking I would fund the trip through a film budget okay. and that never happened right. and I got sidetracked on other expeditions and film stuff and then it came to a point where I could just see this this dream of mine this like what exactly what I wanted to be doing on the planet I saw it slipping away and just know something because partly because I wasn't getting younger and to do this I need to be in good physical shape more than anything and also like it takes a long time so I couldn't like it, I, at some point I want to grow a family and so I came to a point where I just said I gotta I gotta start this 
And I gave myself five months to, to like really like just like, hey, I'm gonna do it five months no matter what. So I was super stressed before I started and then the second I started, I took that first step, that stress just evaporated into thin air and I was just like at peace. And I, I, because I was doing, at that moment, I was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing on the planet. And like I had spent a lot of time figuring out what that was and when I came to figure it out, I knew what I wanted to be doing. It took me seven years before I actually got there. So you can imagine like wanting to do something for seven years and then finally, you know, you take that step and you're doing it and it's a many, many steps potentially. And so in that sense, it's been, it's been amazing. Um, but it's also been extremely hard at times. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. Um, some of the most memorable moments, it's a tough one. You were reading Memory. about one article, uh, <laughs> a blog post of yours, where you went to, uh, you're skiing across BC uh, with just like 30 pounds of uh, gear, air mattresses, and, and maybe your sleeping bag. How do you survive in these conditions? Like, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, so that was an interesting one because I had, like, a lot of these things that I'm doing, like, they, they sound like to somebody who like, like I've done a lot of sort of surviving in the wild, I guess, but I'm by no means an expert, but I know that as long as you, as long as you stay in shape, as long as you don't injure yourself fatally, then you can, you can keep moving. And you know, you, you plan, you get as much knowledge as you can before you start. But when it came to skiing across BC, I, uh, a lot of people who I spoke to were like, thought I was completely crazy. Um, and thought it wasn't even possible, you know? And that's sort of something I've realized a lot of the time is that um, if somebody they, if somebody doesn't know somebody who's done something like big or crazy like that, they think it's impossible just because somebody hasn't done it or because they have a lot of fear. And so whenever I ask somebody or ask somebody like some knowledge about something, if, they, if they're not like, really knowledgeable about that specific thing. They'll say it's impossible, that you're crazy, you shouldn't do it. These are the reasons why you shouldn't do it. And so I usually have to ask a number of people for help before I find somebody who's like the yes guy or the yes woman. And they're like, oh yeah, this is how you gotta do it. And they, and they're like those people have been so helpful for me along the trip. They're just like, this is, this is like, this is what you gotta do, you know, do this, do this, avoid that, take that path, and, it, and it's, comes easily but for the ski thing it took a lot of people before I could find somebody like that but I found this guy who had done a similar ski and he knowing knowing that I he knew that I was very inexperienced skiing like I, I hadn't done a long distance ski trip before and I was about to do a very long one but uh, because I didn't have a ton of experience I took sort of a safer route like I wasn't going through tons of avalanche paths or down like up and down crazy steep mountains. I mean, I did cross mountain ranges and I did go back country for days and days, but um, when it comes down to it, it's basically just like, you know, walking in the snow. <laughs> you know, you, you have skis on, obviously you want to know how to move your body well enough so you don't injure, but you're, you know, you're just walking except you're on skis. and. You stay warm when you're moving because 
you're moving, you're great body heat, and you have, you know, clothing's great. The challenge is when you stop moving, um, and that's that's when you, you need to start a fire, basically, if you want to stay warm. Or you just want to, or you, if you don't start a fire, you just got to climb instantly into your sleeping bag and stay warm. But I had to start a fire because that was the only way I was cooking. Because I, uh, I didn't bring a camp stove or anything like that because then I would have to bring fuel and carry more weight and stuff. So I just kept it really simple. I had a pot, I'd find a tree, break some branches off, start a fire, cook my food, and then basically pass out because I was super tired. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was challenging. It was like, I mean, moving in snow is obviously a lot harder than just walking on ground. It's every step is that you have so much more resistance. And so I burned a lot of calories doing that. I, I had to carry like a pound of butter with me and just eat butter. <laughs> uh, but I, I felt comfortable, you know, comfortable enough. My, my sleeping setup wasn't that great. Instead of a tent, I had a bivy sack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so a bivy sack is just basically like a waterproof sleeping bag cover. But it protects you from the elements. And, but because it does that, it also prevents your, yourself from breathing. So you get like condensation buildup on the outside of your sleeping bag. And so in the morning, I'd wake up and my sleeping bag would be covered with a thin layer of ice. I'd still be warm inside the sleeping bag, but the risk was that when that warmed up, then the ice would turn to water, and then I'd have a wet sleeping bag, and then the next night I'd be freezing cold because I'd be sleeping in a wet sleeping bag. Um, thankfully, it never really got that, that bad to that point, and I'd always shake off the ice every morning. Yeah. It was okay. But, I mean, that, in that whole trip across BC, my, like, the biggest real... Well, okay, so there's a few times where I, I think I was lucky because... Not only was I just like skiing and doing like a backcountry ski trip for the first time, really, like a long one. I'd done like a couple weekend trips, but another, never like something where I was camping and skiing. Uh, but on top of that, I was learning how to telemark ski, basically. So it's basically like cross-country skiing downhill. So you, you don't have, your heel is not attached to the ski. Because so for moving on uh, on alpine skis, your 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 foot is like attached to the ski, the whole thing, so that you can turn and stuff, and it's yeah. easy and jump right. and you ski. But on a cross country ski, it's like this, so that you when you slide forward, it's better for your foot. And so when you're going downhill, it still does that. Right. So when you turn, it's a whole different turning motion. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was learning how to do that basically as I went, and I had uh, my my backpack on me, so it was quite challenging. And there was a number of times when I'd go down a hill and I'd have to turn really fast. I'd wipe out and I'd end up with a ski like above my head, and my foot somehow like twisted around the back of my neck, just wondering how I wasn't in pain. So I lucked out that I didn't like bust a knee or something like that, but. I, I mean, I was not, that was never really, I mean, I guess it was moments of fear doing that, but I just, I learned and I went slowly and figured it out. But, but the biggest fear came when I, uh, when I was on a ski hill. I had met my family on like a ski resort okay. and I can't take the ski lift, right? So uh, to go uphill, you have these like uh, 
fur sort of skins, they call them. Originally they were animal skins, now it's just a synthetic thing, and so you can slide up, but it doesn't slide down. Okay. So you can go up the hill. Yeah. That's what you do when you go backcountry skiing. And so we did that up to the top of the hill, then we skied all the way down. And uh, as we were going back up, uh, ski patrol came and stopped us, and they're like, you can't do this on the hill. You have to come on this on the snowmobile with us. And I was like, no, I can't do that. I'm going around the planet without a motor. And sure enough, they were like, you're complete bullshit. This is ridiculous. And I was like, no, I'm not, I swear. And then finally, like an hour later, they came back and they're like, okay, you gotta either get on the snowmobile or on the ski lift. And it's like, no, I can't get on those things. Those are motorized transport, I can't do it. And then, and then they came back an hour later and they're like, okay, you either gotta get on the snowmobile, get on the ski lift, or we're calling the cops and they're gonna escort you off the hill. And I was like, oh shit, I'm gonna have to go on the run from the cops because I won't get use the motorized transport. And so it came, like, it came within minutes, actually, to me, like, just going on the run into the forest. I didn't really want to do it more, more, not so much, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to go on the run from the cops, but also because my family had come from other sides of the country to visit me, and it would have meant, like, a day detour to get back to see them, so it would have been, like, just a pain in the ass. And then finally, they actually looked at my website and realized I wasn't bullshit, and they let me go back up one of these little side routes. But like I, my heart was beating, like boom. I was so afraid because I didn't want to have to go on the run on the cops. <laughs> yeah. So, um, on, on your journey, like you've always invited friends uh, to join you as well in different parts. Uh, so Rain yeah. and TT, for example, they joined you, your friends. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure there are differences in your experience levels. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's depending on how I'm traveling. So, I'm the, one of the other goals of the trip is to use as many different modes of transportation as possible. So, I started in a canoe, which is fairly straightforward. And in the canoe, I had about five different friends join me. And, you know, as long as I'm steering the canoe, like, it doesn't matter who's in the front. They can paddle, basically. And most people learn, you know. It's like, it's, I, I do my best to teach if I know enough to teach them, which is always it's a learning experience for me to teach people. But... Um, I have a lot of confidence, uh, not only in my own ability to learn and do these things, but in, in other people. And so like, I believe that pretty much anybody can do what I'm doing. It's just a matter of doing it on their own terms and learning and you know, adapting a bit. And so, um, I mean, patience is 100% like, necessary when you're doing it with somebody who doesn't necessarily know how to do it. But uh, thankfully, I haven't had a bad, like, partner joined me. I haven't had like an expedition partner that was like really dangerous. I mean there's been there's been small moments but um, I won't talk about those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah so I mean so so far I think I've used like over 15 different modes of transportation. So I started in a canoe and then I switched, and, and a lot of these have just come about through people lending me, or me borrowing, or you know, just sort of random. It wasn't necessarily planned. I just knew I wanted to change my modes of transportation. Um, so yeah, I started a canoe, trimaran, a hand cycle, pogo stick, tricycle, skiing, rafting, kayaking, another canoe, another kayak. Um, stand-up paddleboard, a rowboat, bicycle, stand-up, or yeah, bicycle, sailboat, um, 
another stand-up paddle board here and there. I've used different bicycles, many different bicycles in different cities. Yeah. Um, and then a, a flatwater fishing boat on the Mekong River. Uh, yeah, I'm switching it up as much as possible. Have fun, you know. Uh, sitting on your ass on the bicycle just gets tiring and painful. One thing I, I mean, I don't know that I would really highly recommend traveling by bicycle. <laughs> when I started the trip, I, I was like, yeah, definitely do it. But I think I would only recommend it to people who, if, if they can avoid highways at all costs. Because otherwise you're just sucking up exhaust and that's the worst thing you can do. What would you recommend though? Do either off-road tours or tours in countries where you can do side roads all the time. Uh, and avoid cities like plague. Just, I mean, some cities are good. Like Singapore is not that bad. I can pretty much avoid the roads everywhere I go. But when you get even just like breathing in the exhaust of one car when you're cycling is, is bad. You know, it's just no good. <laughs> but when you when it happens 50 times or 100 times in a day, like it's just got to be killer on your lungs. Um, but yeah, so that, for that sense, I like switching it up. And I mean, originally when I was thinking of this trip in my head, I was thinking um, like I would be going from national park to national park and spending so much time in the natural environment. But that just hasn't been easy to do in Southeast Asia necessarily. Um, partly because visas and border restrictions have been really challenging. That's been the biggest challenge here. I was planning on walking through Southeast Asia, but I just... You can do that? Because it's just too challenging with the visa stuff. I either only get a 30-day visa or I have to extend it every 30 days and I have to be somewhere where I can yeah, do that. Yeah. I can't necessarily just right. do a visa run if I'm walking. Okay. <laughs> a visa run might be a 60-day run. A 60 literally day a visa run. <laughs> yeah. um, so what has been like your most favorite country so far? Like, you've been to how many already? I haven't been to that many because I spent so much time in Canada and the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> you know, those are two, Canada's giant. That took me like eight months to get across. And then I was on the Pacific for almost a year. So it's Canada, US, uh, Hawaii as well, which some people consider a different country. Uh, mostly Hawaiians. Um, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Palau, Philippines, Hong Kong, China, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, and Singapore. So it's like, I don't know, 10, 10 or 12 yeah. countries. And I'm sure you've met a lot of interesting people along the way. Yeah, so many amazing people. Um, out of the, I mean, favorite country apart from Canada? <laughs> <laughs> Which, to tell you the truth, like where I was living when I started this trip, I, I'd still probably out of everywhere I've been, place I would prefer to live. Apart from the fact that my family and community there is still like a pretty amazing spot, which is uh, Tofino. Yeah. I don't live in Toronto anymore. I live in Tofino on Vancouver Island. Um, but I, I, uh, I mean, I've really loved and appreciated every country I've been to. Hawaii was amazing. I wasn't expecting Hawaii to be as nice. 
thought it was going to be a bit overrun with tourists, but we landed on the big island where the volcanoes were erupting. I actually have a bunch of friends who lost their houses there. Um, I was like literally in that neighborhood where the lava is flowing through, um, which I knew that had been there. I mean, everybody knows it's just a way of life there. The land is super cheap because of it. Canon should get a house in truth there. But uh, that some, for some reason, I think that added to the pretty like powerful energy of that place. So, you know, there's just land being formed all around here. And I really like the fact that you could go from sea level up to, you know, snow-capped mountains. Um, or volcano. Um, I really like Laos, too. Um, just because it's less developed, you know? Less pavement, less industry. Um, I like the natural environment, you know, and pretty much everywhere in Southeast Asia, it's like, it's hard, you know, this is just, if it's not cities and pavement, it's like palm plantations or rubber plantations or, you know, some sort of plantation everywhere, you know, um, but, yeah, people are awesome everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying to comprehend this. <laughs> so, you started from Canada and the continent of uh, the North America, right? And you, without a mortal, you went all the way to Asia. You had to cross the Pacific Ocean, right? It's huge. It is huge. How do you actually do that? I like, did, did it you, all. Did you like, row a boat along the way with the whole the waves and everything? Oh my God, I'm going to die, but I'm not. And continue rowing. I used a sailboat. Okay. Yeah, okay. a 30-foot right. sailboat. Uh, with a sailboat, oh, it's like kind of like a Paris or Caribbean stuff kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Sorry, did you say Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt like a pirate sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but okay, with a sailboat, without mortar, mortar right? And then it's strong enough to stand the waves of the ocean. Yeah, I mean, like, it wasn't that long ago that that's how everybody got around, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true, yeah. I, like, it's, it's amazing how quickly yeah. people have forgotten yeah. the fact that exactly. like, people were going around the planet without motors. Right. Like, it was the norm. I mean, there's obviously, all, most people did it on bigger boats. Yeah. yeah. With, like, tons of crew on board. But yeah, yeah, yeah. they weren't necessarily smarter about it because you hear the days of scurvy and people dying because they didn't have enough vitamin C on the board. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, nowadays, like, it, it, it's... To do it on a small boat is not that dangerous because there's... And even to do it solo. Like, half of the time I was by myself on that boat. But okay. uh, it was easy to stock it with more than enough healthy food and supplies. And there's so much knowledge out there of the ocean and the forecasts and, like... Right. You know, lands, charts, and stuff like that. It's not. It's not actually a hundred percent accurate. Still, like especially in Micronesia, where not that many people travel, there's still inaccuracies in the charts. Um, the satellite images are some of the best. You know, ways to navigate with. If you overlay a satellite image with charts, navigate fairly accurately. Um, but yeah, I mean. Life on the ocean isn't easy, especially yeah. on a small boat. It's very different than one of these massive ships out here. Yeah. Uh, but it's 
I felt I felt much safer out in the middle of the ocean than I do on a highway okay. with on my bicycle. Oh, yeah. Because out in the middle of the ocean, you you don't have to deal with human error unless it's your own human error. But I feel confident that I won't make an error. Um, but on a highway with cars whizzing by you, somebody's texting while they're driving, or they just make a quick lack of judgment for a second. They're moving so fast, they slip the turn their wheel an inch and bam, I'm done, you know? Out on the ocean, I don't see people for 20 days at a time sometimes, and it's and it's just me and the whales and the fish and the dolphins, and they, they don't want to hurt me, so. Um, and you know, like the boat, the, I was confident in the boat. You gotta have, you have, you have to have confidence in whatever craft you're on. Um, it was a seaworthy boat. It was small and uncomfortable, but seaworthy. Like, it could withstand pretty strong weather um, and I avoided hurricane season I didn't I still experienced some storms with you know like five meter waves and like I don't know what was the strongest wind we experienced it was probably like 50 mile an hour winds uh, which you know it, it gets a bit Strong. <laughs> it's a bit strong. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's a bit scary at times, but uh, you just gotta be smart about it. Take down the sails. I guess one of the reason why, for example, for me or many of our listeners, maybe why we found your fit so interesting is um, the very fact you done it without motor, right? But if you push it, ours human history a couple hundred years ago and people have done it as well but now we're kind of so wrapped up with uh, the comfort we're having that we kind of forget and for example me I don't even know we could do that but people do that and when I was a young kid I was reading this book uh, traveling around the world in 80 days or something yeah. it was my favorite book nice. and yeah and the, the guy just sailed a um, boat or whatever and traveled around and uh, I completely forgot about it yeah. so yeah so it's a different fresh perspective I see do you miss home, like during these times? Sorry? You've been on the road for such a long time. Do you miss home at times? Um, if I do, I suppress it. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I've never, I've never really been one to get attached. And it, it's partly a conscious decision and probably partly subconscious decision. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm like very practical in that sense, in the way I like treat, and you know, the way I feel, um, like my, my affection towards others, my love towards family and to my home. Um, like I, I, I sort of accept that I'm not with them, you know, and I accept that I've chosen to do this and. If, if I had an overwhelming feeling that I needed to be with them, then I would stop the trip and I'd go and be with them. But uh, just knowing that, that they're in my life, that they're okay, is it's okay for me. And like I've never had an attachment to a place so much or to things. I've always been quite happy to let go of those things. Um, and these days it's really pretty easy to stay in touch with people too. Like if I, if I feel I need to talk to my sister or my nieces or family, like I, 
phone them up and I can yeah. see them. Your sister's in town as well, right? I can right? video yeah. chat with them, and yeah, and my sister's in town right now. Like she, she came to see me, so it's, and it's not the first time. She, she okay. sailed with me in the Philippines for a month and a half too. Nice. Um, so, and my other sister and my nieces are planning on coming to see me soon. And I've had a buddy come a couple times. Different buddies come and see me. And, um, so, yeah, I mean that that definitely makes it better. But uh, I'm also like. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, social, you know, your non-profit, Roots of Change, and uh, ultimately, what's the message that you want to get across to the people that you meet? You know, one of the one of the big uh, criticisms of what I'm doing is that my message is too uh, is too vague and it's too broad and it's okay. somewhat. Uh, like my main message is that there's people all over the planet who are doing what they can to make it a better place, and you should support them. Um, and it doesn't take a lot. You know? and I think uh, part of my message is simply that, like, whatever. Like this is the message I say to kids in the schools. Like I do a lot of school presentations as well as part of this. And one of the big messages, one of the takeaways I try to give them is that no matter how big the challenges that you're facing in life just got to take the first step and it gets easier from there you know so many people they look at something and they're like oh that's like i i can't do that for one so many people don't believe that they're they they have the ability to change themselves or the planet but like i think it's just a, it's a fact of science it's a fact of our lives that whatever we're doing we're, we're affecting the world around us and we're changing the planet and so that's i guess my biggest takeaway is that we're changing the planet, and we should take ownership of that. We should take responsibility of that. Um, we should stop living in denial of how our actions affect the world. Um, because most of us do. I mean, I, I'm not completely honest in like everything I do. Like I, I sometimes make compromises. I, I mean, I sort of notice it when I do, but. Um, but this sort of came about for me trying to be as honestly as I possibly could. And that's sort of where the mo no motor thing came about. Because I just didn't want to be working in environmental justice and flying around the planet supporting the same corporations that these people are trying to prevent from destroying their environment. You know? um, I just didn't want to support big oil and gas and what yeah. I was doing. Which I know it's very hard to do in the world we live in. It's sort of become a way of life. It's just the norm. But... Uh, that's not a reason to, to not change, to not adapt, to move away from it, to transition, you know. Um, so, you know, you got to start somewhere. You got to take that first step. You got to change. Um, I guess that would be the main message. And then... Change. <laughs> change! <laughs> so what, what small, like, you know, actions do you think individuals like us can take to practice sustainability in their lives? Uh, well, I think one of the biggest ones that, that may seem complicated at first, but it's it ends up being really simple, and that's just know who or what you're supporting when you spend your money. 
because that's pretty much like our most powerful vote these days is what we spend our money on and how we spend it because as we know corporations are pretty much ruling the world and some of them are doing okay things a lot of them are doing pretty bad things and they're able to do it because we support them because we buy their stuff and so if you look at who you're supporting look at where your food comes from, what you're supporting when you buy your food, what you're supporting when you buy certain products, like where you spend your money. Think about that and just, you know, try to make conscious buying decisions. That's a, that's a really simple place to start. Um, and it's, it's not that hard to figure out what and who you're supporting when you buy that stuff. Um, you know, I mean, like, there's a lot of greenwashing happening yeah. these days. Like a lot of like, I, I mean, I I biked through the whole this like climate action thing. Okay, was that recently, and I and uh, I actually wanted to check it out more. There's, there's you know there's a lot of good stuff happening, but there's a lot of also stuff that just in the face of what's happening in the bigger picture, a, sim- a really small action just seems useless. Um, but it, I mean, you, you've got to start somewhere and like, sometimes it's definitely feels overwhelming. It's like, well, why does it matter if I bring a bottle of water, like bring my reusable water bottle with me when there's a million plastic water bottles floating around on the beach right out in front, you know, or, or there's 500 ships here carrying oil and gas. Like what is my little action going to do? And, uh, you know, it's easy to feel powerless, but it's it's much better to feel empowered as well (laughs) and empowered. And, you know, I mean, you've got to start somewhere. Like, these, these ships started, you know, somebody built them with, with like you know it started from something small everything started from something small like the, the guy who owns 500 of these ships probably started by selling lemon juice or something like that <laughs> he had a lemonade stand or he was some part of some royal family but uh, you know it's like everything starts from something small and it, it's like you, know, you just got to start somewhere um, but you don't you don't want to stop you like you can't just do one little action and say oh that's great ticked off my like I'm done now I don't need to do anything more you know it's like you just got to keep keep pursuing honesty for one you know keep, keep being honest with yourself and, um, and then uh, yeah so I mean apart from like no buying stuff um, getting involved in your in a local organization local community is a huge way because you, it, another way you feel sort of empowered you, feel powerless is when you just go at it by yourself but the the fact of the matter is that there's people doing stuff everywhere around you there's communities organized around it and you'll save a lot of time and be much more efficient if you work together in a community or an organization and and you know if there's there's such a wide array of different organizations doing really cool things that are working to solve problems that exist in our society and there like there's no doubt there's big problems in every society everywhere um, and there's there's always ways to help, and 
and I mean, it's like it's the most rewarding thing you can do in life. Like, if you're looking to be happy, start giving. Like, it's if like if for if if for no other reason than that selfish reason of wanting to be happy, start giving. Like, volunteer. Don't donate money. Like, just start giving, and that's like you're gonna you're gonna be much happier person. You know, um, the, the you know this whole like greedy keep everything you own you earn to yourself and you don't have time to like help people or do that thing like it, it doesn't it doesn't really like it's not making people happier um, the more you give the, the happier you are really <laughs> it's uh it's an interesting one so well, what's next for you now from Singapore where to next where to next yeah, I'm sure you're facing challenges right now, right? Trying to find a <laughs> Yeah, so my whole plans have sort of been up in the air and shifting recently. I, uh, I recently did this 10-day uh, silent Vipassana meditation right, yeah. retreat. And when I went into it, I was expecting to go to KL and sail with a new friend to Sumatra. But when I got out of it, uh, I discovered that he had organized a boat in Phuket in Thailand which was awesome of him it was really great that he did that but it was uh, about 2,000 kilometer bike ride out of the way and I couldn't get the visa I needed in Thailand so I basically a week before I ended up deciding to come to Singapore because hoping that I'd be able to find a sailboat from here or or at least get my visa for Indonesia um, because I need a special visa in order to stay longer. That if I went over to Sumatra, I wouldn't know when I would be able to get out of the country, so I wanted to have some cushion of a few yeah. months at least. So I need to get a special visa, which is why I came to Singapore. And also I had to leave Malaysia because my visa was running up there. So that's what brought me to Singapore, and I was when I got here, I wasn't too hopeful in finding a boat to leave from Singapore because it's very challenging. They don't let you paddle out of here and they sailing out of here, they sort of force you to use a motor to go and do their customs checkout. So so I was thinking I'd just stay here for a few weeks and then bike back into Malaysia. Um, but now I just recently uh, was offered a kayak and discovered that I could just go across the border to Johor Bahru and kayak from like the Malaysian coast over to Batam. Yeah. And then island hop kayak all the way to Sumatra uh, and I really want to go to Sumatra because I have I've been offered a little place to do like a work trade in a, in a little surf town and I just want to stay put and work on my vlog and do some video editing and figure out how to finance the rest of this trip uh, so I want to just sort of stay put but also I, I was looking forward to surfing I live in a little surf town in Canada and that's like usually my daily exercise go surf in the ocean uh, and I haven't done it for over a year now, so I was sort of hoping to be somewhere where I can do that. I do miss that. Um, so yeah, uh, that that option is very much on the table. I just need to figure out some, some of the details. So maybe in like a week and a half or two, I'll be kayaking from Malaysia over to Indonesia. Um, and then sort of longer term plan, uh, I'm keeping an eye out for a boat to get across the Indian Ocean to Sri Lanka or to India. Uh, 
and then I really want to go to India and up into the Himalayas. Uh, it's just somewhere in the world that I've always wanted to go. Yeah. Um, and then, because uh, I can't get to India over land, the borders are all closed. Can you go from Bangladesh? I can't get to Bangladesh. From Myanmar? Uh, borders are closed. Yeah. yeah. So the Myanmar borders are closed. The Chinese borders, uh, you could get across if you went on a train or with a guide. That's out of the question for me. Um, so I can get there by sea, but not by land. And then getting out of there is also challenging. I'd have to probably sail or somehow get special permission to go to uh, Pakistan or Iran, which would be unlikely. So. so anyways, that's sort of like, I, I'd like to get that way. I'd like to find a boat to do that. I'm not like super confident that that will come about it's not the season right now for one it wouldn't happen until the fall late fall that's when people start sailing that way um, so otherwise my my plan would be to bicycle back north uh, through Thailand Laos China Central Asia through the stands over to Europe and then I'd be in Europe and, yeah. and then final question uh, well, yeah. sorry I'd love to go to Africa, yeah. You're skipping that in this tour? No, not necessarily. <clears throat> From Europe down to Africa, if I can. Depends on political stuff. You know, border crossings are always the challenge. Unfortunately, they make it hard sometimes. Yeah, uh, no, I'd love to go to Africa. I've been there before. But, yeah. So, all right, last question. Wait, wait, I want to ask something. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think is the uh, most uh, important challenging challenge we are facing as a humanity right now? Important, the most important challenge we're facing is in humanity? Yeah. Um, right now. Right now? Yeah, that needs to be solved. Uh, I'd say destroying the uh, life systems and environment that we survive on. Right, the climate. Thing. Yeah, I mean, not even necessarily just the climate. Like, whether the climate changes or not, we're still destroying our environment. And, uh, like, we, we don't know what's going to happen with the climate. I mean, we have some good ideas and the warming and the sea levels rising, but, I mean, we could adapt to that, but we can't adapt to poisoning and destroying everything that we need to survive. And that, like, we're still doing that in a big way. Um, I think... I think our our planet can sustain our population, no problem, and we, we we can grow enough food. I don't think that's that's the issue. It's just the the amount of waste and stupidity that we have right now as a species is is unfortunate. Um, that I think is a big, I mean, a big one. But I don't know if which is going to come first, that or whether. Uh, AI is going to take over the world and destroy us. Yeah, yeah. It's possible. <laughs> I think the singularity is 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 coming. It's fast upon us, and whether uh, AI decides we're valuable or not is a big question. So we better record this and say, "AI, we love you." But it already knows. It's already yeah, listening. Yeah. That's oh, the crazy yeah. thing. <laughs> All right, so, question. <laughs> how do you survive on the boat for 20 days in the ocean? What stories do you tell yourself? Like, how do you maintain the sanity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's crazy, man. Uh, how do I maintain my sanity while out at sea? I, I don't have troubles. Um, how do you maintain your sanity living in a city? Yeah, I never said that. So, yeah, I mean, people ask me, like, when you're out at sea, like, don't you feel really, like, lonely? Don't you so alone? Like, you're so, you're by yourself, you're so lonely. But uh, I go out to sea knowing that I'm going to be alone, and I'm quite comfortable being by myself and being alone because I'm comfortable with who I am. And, and I mean, I can also read, I can listen to music, I can listen to podcasts, I can dance. I do a lot of dancing. <laughs> Check my social media, yo. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's like when I come to a city and there's millions of people everywhere and I walk down the street and nobody even looks me in the eyes or says hello, that's when I feel low. You know, like it, it's, it's like I could walk down here and, and not meet a single person. And like that's just sort of the way cities are. Like, I'm much more. I much more prefer a small town where everybody says hello and they like are curious about. It. I get why cities become the way they do because there's so many people and you can't just say hello to everybody. And people are afraid of people and they're taught to not speak to strangers. But like, you gotta speak to strangers when you travel or you don't speak to anybody. Um, that's what I love about traveling. All sorts of bizarre and interesting people that you would never otherwise meet. And, like, I would say, like, 100% of them are awesome. Maybe there's 0.0001% of them who, who have assholes. ulterior motives or who are assholes or are wanting to steal from you or, you know, but I, I tend not to meet those people because I... Those people don't see me as a target. Like, I'm not, I'm not a vulnerable. I I'm, I'm look just as crazy as them, right? Who is this crazy guy on a bicycle wandering through my town? He's like, I, I'm afraid of him. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and rob him. Uh, yeah, but I mean, when I'm out at sea, it's, it's, it's just peaceful. It's, I mean, it's not always comfortable, but uh, there's, I never lack something to occupy my mind or, or do. One of the things that people, I think, uh, don't really necessarily appreciate is. When you're out on the ocean, similar to sitting around a campfire, similar to sitting around a campfire, <laughs> you can stare at the ocean and at the waves, and it's a constantly changing pattern. And it it's, can be as mesmerizing as looking at a fire because the pattern's always changing, and, it, and it's fascinating. You can see many different patterns and different forms. And when you do that, you also end up seeing dolphins and whales and fish. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's quite meditative, I guess. It's uh, peaceful. And then I listen to music. What music do you listen to? I listen to all sorts of different music, you name it. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, like, I like variety. Um, What's gonna happen once you're done? Finish the whole 
Do you know what's going to happen to you in three years? No, not really. <laughs> no, but like, where do you it's see so you? hard for me to answer that question. I don't know. Um, I have an idea of what I want to do yeah, when I'm yeah, done. Exactly. I mean, I want to uh, settle down and grow food. Yeah, that's, the, that's uh, more than anything, that's probably the one thing that I miss is being able to eat really good food, healthy food um, that uh, on a daily basis. Like I, I really cherish my health above anything in life. I like, that's my number one priority is my health and it, it can be really challenging when you travel to, to eat what is healthy for you all the time. Not to say that uh, I don't like the food everywhere I go. I really enjoy the food, but it's not always necessarily the healthiest when you're eating out all the time. You know, just a ton of, ton of fried and oily and salty and sugar and just like all sorts of like, you know, not as much fresh vegetables as I'd like. And that's when I feel the healthiest when I eat majority fresh vegetables. And I'd like to grow that. And I'd like to grow a family. Grow <laughs> food and family. I do, yeah. I try to. I, it's not easy to. It's a lot more expensive in cities. It is a lot more expensive, which is why I want to grow it. <laughs> <laughs> and which is why I've also been woofing as I go, which is Willing Workers on Organic Farms. Uh, it's a worldwide organization that links farmers with volunteers. And so I've been trying to do that more frequently. I just did it for a month and a half in Malaysia. And that's a good way to, one, travel and get experience a community a bit better, two, not spend as much money. You get room and board in exchange for the work you do on the farm. And then three, eat really good food, fresh from the soil and be healthy. So it's, it's a great way to experience the world, volunteering, traveling. What kind of world would you want your niece to experience when she grows up? What kind of world would like my, I want my niece to experience or inherit? Um, just a healthy one. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Just one where she doesn't have to be concerned about her health everywhere she goes. One where she can be free and safe and healthy. What does healthy mean? What does safe mean? Uh, I mean, healthy means uh, an environment that isn't polluted, an environment that isn't filled with toxins, um, uh, where she can have access to food that's not been sprayed with insecticides and pesticides, and, uh, where she can walk down the street and not be concerned about inhaling some carcinogenic thing. Um, Safe means just, I mean, pretty much doesn't have to be concerned about her safety. You know, I mean, yeah, which most of us don't need to be in the world right now. Like, it's, it's a pretty safe world we live in, despite what media would tell us. Um, again, that comes back to the war machine. We always need to have an enemy in order to keep the war machine running. So now they've created the best enemy of all, which is terrorism, which is never going to be defeated. It has no real 
border or nation and it can just be created out of nothing by hiring somebody to go and do something, you know? It's, you can create a terrorist in a second. Um, but, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's, there's issues, there's big issues on the planet and terrorism is, is one of them in places. Um, but it has, in many ways, been created by actions that were, in my mind, quite um, intended. You know? um, so yeah, I mean, a world of more understanding, I guess, more appreciation and acceptance for our differences and our similarities. I mean, I think we're we have a much more in common with each other than we like to believe, or that most people believe who don't travel, who don't speak to strangers. <laughs> uh, the world's a very friendly place. Place, it's very safe. It's, it's great. Do you think that's the one big thing missing in today's world is a connection and acceptance and gratitude? We don't talk as much to each other. Is that the one thing that's missing? Uh, you know, in many ways, I think it's actually, it's become, we, we have a greater understanding and acceptance and understanding of each other than, um, than ever before, thanks to social media and our ability to communicate with people across the world easier. Um, you know, and that's like, that's another like sort of big, who knows what's going to happen with the internet. If we can maintain the freedom of the internet and our ability to communicate with people across the world, I think that's a huge strength for for us moving forward. I think we will. <laughs> Thank you, Marcus. It's lovely just listening to you, uh, you know, hearing your experiences. Uh. Well, this is it for Marcus from Roots of Change. Hope you guys have enjoyed the show. I'll see you guys next week. Peace out.